Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Olympics of Architecture, the Venice Biennale, opens after a year on hold. A South London school built outside approved plans faces demolition. Keir Starmer criticised for backing new fence around Primrose Hill. And the Barbican Centre's new exhibition on 1980s feminist design collective Matrix. My name's Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the Lundown. My special guest this week is Ollie Wainwright. Ollie is the architecture and design critic at The Guardian. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Merlin. It's great to be here. Our first story this week is all about the Venice Architecture Biennale, which has finally opened a year later than originally scheduled due to the pandemic. And it's been reviewed in depth by Ollie Wainwright, who has reported on the festival in person for The Guardian. The 17th edition of the festival, traditionally held once every two years, but delayed last year due to the lockdown, has been curated by Lebanese architect and academic Hashim Sarkis, who posed the big curatorial question, how will we live together? This pertinent question has garnered a range of responses, with the climate crisis being grappled by Nairobi's Cave Bureau, the recognition of the Daesha refugee camp near Bethlehem as a UNESCO World Heritage Site by the Palestinian-Italian group DAR, and a post-human future proposed by US-based British duo Parsons and Charlesworth. In his manifesto, Sarkis said that, as politics continues to divide and isolate, we can offer alternative ways of living together through architecture. UK participants in Sarkis's show included Smout Allen, Alison Brooks Architects, Rural Office and Farshi Basavi Architecture. Alongside the two directly curated exhibition halls, the Arsenale and the Main Pavilion, are a number of national pavilions. These are permanent buildings, mostly in Venice's Giardini, where the interior is used for a single show. The British Pavilion, this year curated by Maddie Kessler, a previous guest on the show, and Manager Vajess, is titled The Garden of Privatised Delights and explores the debate around privatised public space, featuring private gardens, a pub and even a high street. Sometimes described as the Olympics, or perhaps should it be the Eurovision of architecture, the Biennale is a major cultural event, but often also seen as a kind of media frenzy, and by many visitors valued as much for its social and networking opportunities as its content. 
Despite social distancing impacting this key social element of this year's event, the festival has once again been covered extensively, mostly by journalists working remotely across the architectural media, me included, and including also in the AJ, which spotlighted the British Pavilion and other national installations. So, Ollie, what's this all about? You travelled to Venice for The Guardian to see the Biennale in person. What were the highlights? Were there any exhibits you felt missed the mark? And who do you think should be crowned overall winner of this year's show? Well, I think the curator is quite lucky in a way this year that a lot of people won't go to see it in person. Um, because I have to say, of all of the Biennales I've been to since 2006, I think, this must rank as probably the most confusing, muddled, convoluted, misguided uh, disappointment, which is a real shame because I had high hopes having read Hashim Sarkis's kind of manifesto. You know, I, I believe in, in him and his work. Uh, and what he stands for and, and particularly at our kind of present time the idea of interrogating you know how are we going to live together in the face of the climate crisis in the wake of um, protests for racial justice in the kind of wake of the refugee crisis you know so many urgent issues and it seems that the architect's response in general is to produce kind of meaningless installation art that somehow acts as an allegory for these issues. You know, rather than tackling these things head on and thinking actually how are we going to live together, you know, what forms of new co-housing or, or tenure structures or community-led developments could we see? You know, it's actually like, no, let's build a robot and a mountain of soil and see like if we can generate a fungus farm. You know, it reminds me of when I was applying for architecture school in the kind of early 2000s where all of the London schools seem to be obsessed with algae and fungus and, you know, the future of robotics. And I really had hoped that that era was, was long dead, but sadly it seems to be alive and well, um, mostly in American academia. Um, I think that's, that's one of the symptoms of, uh, or one of the key problems with this Biennale, that because Sarkis is based in an academic institution, he used his network of other kind of so-called research clusters within universities and they're often pursuing these incredibly arcane and kind of self-indulgent research projects that just don't translate into a meaningful exhibition I'm sorry to say. Tell us your highlights and obviously yeah there, there was a pandemic so I think some people didn't feature in the show uh, in the end who originally intended to but yeah and also beyond the ex the main exhibition the national pavilions yeah what, what was what was really good who do you think should should win the uh, the overall award if there is one this time around? Well, it's really interesting, actually. For once, I would say, um, the US Pavilion was a real standout, um, unusually so. It's curated by two Chicago-based architects, Paul Preisner and Paul Anderson. And they were looking at what, in again, in American academic circles, is dismissed as an incredibly kind of dull and tedious topic, uh, but which is actually fascinating for that very reason. It's... Um, the history and ubiquity of timber framing in US, in, in the US. In the so, you know, the fact that I think 90% of homes in America are still made using kind of stick construction, softwood timber framing, um, you know, warehouse buildings, offices. It, it showed how this, you know, very basic system that can basically be built by anyone requires very kind of simple details uh, using materials that are readily available um, has been so successful and so ubiquitous for, for decades. Uh, and they built this very kind of ambitious structure in front of the pavilion itself so you could climb up and get great new views across the Giardini. And inside, it was just a very elegant display. There were kind of several scale models of these timber frame structures and some beautiful photographs of, of these buildings under construction. 
And it, it did the thing that so few pavilions do, which is to take one idea and convey it in a very simple and elegant way, um, which is, seems to be what most national pavilion creators forget every year. So the big hitting trend now is building on top of the pavilion rather than going inside it. Yeah, yeah, that's what the US did. Um, the, the Japanese approach was, was, I guess, similar. They, they brought over a 1940s uh, what they described as an ordinary Japanese house. It was just a kind of regular building uh, that they dis- It was going to be demolished anyway, so they dismantled it very neatly and packed it in crates and brought it to Venice and arranged the pieces in the pavilion as a kind of wabi-sabi salvage yard, everything very neatly organised with kind of used bathroom lino, um, you know, bits of walls with kind of... Uh, shadows where there used to be pictures hanging on them. Um, you know, it, it showed the kind of pattern of use over time of these bits of the building. And then they used some of the bits to kind of create these new structures outside the pavilion and kind of bolted onto the, to the side of the structure. Um, the Belgian pavilion, I would say, is also a highlight uh, this year, curated by the Flemish side. Um, again, just like massive scale models, one to 15 scale kind of doll's houses that you could almost walk through uh, a selection of projects that had all been procured via the open opera system in Flanders, which is the, the kind of government led um, open procurement system, which has actually led to a lot of opportunities for UK architects, you know, who, who don't have a chance to build here. They all go to, to Flanders to realise their first projects. And again, just a very elegant idea, beautifully made models. You can tell I'm a sucker for models. Um, but yeah, those, those three, I would say, were my highlights of the, the National Pavilion. So as you were saying, the Biennale theme set in 2019, long before the pandemic, was how will we live together? And clearly this responds to things like the climate and the refugee crisis, increasing political polarisation. But it's also extraordinarily apt given everything that's happened over the past 12 months. Um, Obviously, COVID-19 is one of these and its impact on the way we live. But there's also been some some quite kind of like direct, directly architectural or built environment crises along the way. Like, for example, the Port of Beirut explosion um, or the violence triggered by the storming of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Something that's happened quite recently. Did anything in the main exhibition and national pavilions really address these issues in a way which seemed essential? Uh, were there any comments also from the curator on these? There were a few that, that addressed the topic. Um, if, if you had the patience to kind of weed through the garbage, there, there were definitely some gems lurking in the corners. Um, I, I think one of the highlights was by uh, the Dar Collective, who you mentioned in your introduction, that was um, charting their attempt to get the Daisha refugee camp uh, UNESCO World Heritage listed. And they, they produced a, a kind of fascinating documentary about the history of the camp. Um, you know, which has been there since the 1940s and has developed into a kind of functioning civil society. But at the same time, the people living there don't want it to feel permanent because they have their legal right of return and they're still hoping to go back to their original village, villages that their families were, were kind of banished from. Um, so, so I suppose by, you know, making it, but, but by attempting to declare it as a UNESCO World Heritage Site, it questions, you know, how, what, what is heritage for a stateless population? Um, and what were the implications of making that, you know, apparently temporary site a kind of recognised um, heritage site? So, yeah, given what's been happening in the Middle East over the last few weeks, it's, um, you know, makes it incredibly kind of uh, poignant, I, I suppose, at the moment. Um, and in the room next door, there was another Bethlehem-based practice, um, the Anastas brothers, Yusuf and Elias Anastas, who over the past decade have been experimenting with um, kind of new 
load-bearing masonry techniques. So kind of mobilizing Palestinian stonemasons who, as you know, build most of the buildings in Israel. Um, seeing how they can use a kind of new milling techniques to develop load-bearing masonry structures. So if you go to Jerusalem, most of the architecture still um, has to be clad in a certain kind of stone as, as part of the planning policy, but it's just used as a cladding generally. So they're looking at how it can become load-bearing. And they built this beautiful um, pavilion that's based on a design for a new art centre in Jordan that they've developed um, with kind of undulating vaults of different heights to, to define um, different spaces underneath. So yeah, th those two, I think, stood out for me in the central pavilion. It's been pointed out that despite a stated aim of the curator to make a conscious effort on diversity, just 25% of this year's Benale participants are female and a third from beyond Europe and the USA. Why do you think this happened? Is it to do with the sort of part devolved format funding selection of some of the exhibition contents? Um, and also, yeah, how do you think future Biennales could actually deliver on being more representative of the world that we live in? That is the, the eternal challenge of the Biennale directors. Um, I remember when Rem Kohlhaas was selected, he said his biggest job was fundraising, you know, which is why he asked for twice the amount of time that the directors usually get. You kind of assume that once you get that job, you're given an, a lavish budget by the Italian state, but you're not. You're given the kind of prestige. And then you have, uh, yeah, two years maximum to, to fundraise. And then in turn, the director has to get the architects themselves, the contributors to fundraise for their own projects, you know, which is why in the past we've seen a lot of the kind of corporate firms presenting these incredible models, you know, because they've paid for them themselves or they have access to, um, to sponsors. So, yeah, it's very difficult in, um, in, in developing countries and, and for practices that don't have access to those kinds of funds uh, just because of the model of the Biennale. So, I mean, one way you could do it would be to have some almost like a taxation where, um, you know, the kind of more well-heeled corporate practices somehow help to cross-subsidise emerging offices. That would be one model. Um, I mean, the Biennale itself is never going to have a, a vast budget. So I think it does, it depends on a kind of a, a director to have, have the ingenuity and, and, yeah, exploit those kind of guerrilla tactics. But to have just 25% women when you're saying you're making a conscious effort on diversity, I mean, that's a bit of a wanger, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that was a bit of an own goal. Um, actually, every single installation had about 10 different credits. So I wonder um, in the statistic you cited if that's the kind of lead, you know, the lead name is usually the man, I guess partly because architecture has for so long been such a male-dominated industry. And it was interesting actually going around the exhibition, the, the person that comes up to you to explain their project you know, it's always the guy and you often see kind of three or four women waiting in the shadows who clearly did all the work but it's the kind of named professor of so-and-so university who wants to come and talk to you about his project. A couple of weeks ago we were very fortunate to have Madeleine Kessler on the show as our guest pundit. Uh, she talked us through her vision behind the British Pavilion in Venice uh, and the journey the audience takes from the kind of heaven of common ownership to the hell of fully privatised spaces inspired by Hieronymus Bosch's The Garden of Earthly Delights. Um, did you get a chance to, to go down and see that pavilion? Um, what did you think of it and how did it compare to how previous British pavilions have uh, taken on the commission? I, again, it was one that I had quite high hopes for because it's a topic that I'm really interested in and, and a really worthy topic. You know, I'm really glad they, they chose that, the kind of encroaching privatisation of our public space. Um, 
I think the execution, it fell into the usual trap that the British Pavilion often does, which is just to get too many people involved. Um, I think they had six practices altogether working, you know, each one had a different room, uh, took a different kind of part of, of the urban realm. One was the pub, one was the high street, um, one was the future of the commons, another was about playgrounds, another was about gated squares, you know, and it seemed like each one had kind of been left to do their own thing and, and use whatever curatorial and, and kind of scenographic method they thought fit. Um, there were some nice details. I've been longing to see Weatherspoon's carpets recognised for their true artistic value, um, which they finally were. There were two, two samples of Weatherspoon's carpets on the wall because famously each, uh, each Weatherspoon's venue has its own custom-designed carpets with kind of local references, so it's nice to see that valued. Um, in the public works room about the future of the commons, there were some you know really nice graphics based on old trade union posters, the idea of a new kind of ministry of common land. So there were, there were some nice touches in the scenography, but, but not much of substance. You know, once you kind of got over the fun props, there was very little meat to it. And, and then what do you think uh, is next for the Biennale? Will it survive as an institution uh, that is, you know, ultimately useful to architectural discourse? Um, can it continue as, as a, just a knees up in Venice? Um, what do you think is the future for these star-studded Prosecco-fueled architecture exhibitions? I, I think it will continue. And it's interesting, actually, you know, in the architecture media world, we think of it as this kind of knees up party week. That is a fraction, a tiny, tiny fraction of what it is. It's mainly for school groups. Uh, that's the thing that people don't realise. The Biennale is a kind of educational tool for primary and secondary schools in Italy. You know, there's, there's kind of thousands of kids that are bussed there to see these things, which is why every year I get so angry at the kind of impenetrable nature of so many of the displays, because the primary audience is kids and families. You know, it's not the profession. We, we all go there for the opening week and like to think that it's this kind of momentous moment to have international discourse about the future of the profession and kind of air all of our neuroses. Um, that, that is a tiny, tiny percentage of, of what it's for. Um, it's interesting talking to Liza Fior, who, who did the British Brilliant one year, because that, that was her big point. You know, she did some quite a lot of thorough research with the demographics who actually goes to, to see the exhibition and realised that it was school groups. So, you know, tried to make it a lot more accessible. You are listening to The Lundown, a weekly news show brought to you by Open City. Open City is now recruiting for a new head of Accelerate to deliver, develop and expand Open City's pioneering Accelerate programme. Visit open-city.org.uk forward slash blog for more information. We rely on support from people like you to make this show. So if you like The Lundown and want to support our work, please share the link, leave us a review on iTunes and consider becoming an Open City friend. Open City friends receive a bunch of perks, including discounts on all Open City events and publications, audio walking tours of amazing parts of London and friends events at special locations around the city. Visit open-city.org.uk forward slash support to find out more. Our next story this week was covered in the AJ and is all about a new school faced with demolition after not being built to its approved plans. Contractors for the Archdiocese of Southwark did not comply with planning consent when building the Lady and St Philip Neri Primary School in Sydenham. A planning inquiry has ruled. The diocese has appealed to the inspectorate, arguing that an original design for the school by Pollard Thomas Edwards was, not, quote, not buildable, and that its contractor, Darwin Group, 
had no choice but to alter the scheme. But the implanting inspector dismissed the diocese's appeal and ordered it to reconstruct the school according to the original plans approved by Lewisham Council in 2016. The decision follows a long and complex battle between local residents, the diocese and the council, uh, which started when construction began and councillors and local residents raised concerns that the building varied significantly from the original planning permission. Amongst their concerns were the type and colour of cladding installed, the type of windows used and the height of the building. Uh, in late 2019, the school issued an enforcement notice ordering the archdiocese to either re rebuild the school in a way that is compliant or make a series of changes, including replacing the cladding and windows with what was originally agreed. In the ensuing inquiry, the council argued that the built scheme did not comply with policy, describing it as, quote, low quality, poorly detailed and harmful to the character and appearance of the local street scene. Meanwhile, the Archdiocese countered that the Pollard Thomas Edwards design was, quote, not buildable, and an alternative scheme by IID Architects to bring the built structure in line with the original consent would achieve most closely the, quote, ascertainable design intentions of the consented 2016 original. So, Ollie, what's it all about? I have to admit that the finished school looks nothing like the original PTE plans. Uh, you can go online on the AJ article and have a good look at this. Um, frankly, it is a very ugly building and it's easy to understand why people have complained. Um, what went wrong here? Uh, did PTE really produce an unbuildable building, as the Archdiocese suggests? Or do you think the issue here speaks more to the problems faced by the de design and build process in general? What a mess. I mean, to me, it's, it's such a kind of damning indictment of UK procurement, you know, particularly when it comes to public buildings like schools and hospitals. And it's such a familiar story. Um, there are so many examples of this that never make the headlines because the councils never challenge them. But, you know, go to any major public contractor led building and you're going to find they've used cheaper windows than that were originally specified, you know, totally different kind of cladding system. The roof profile is completely, you know, off from the original. And, and for some reason, this one has made the headlines because for once the council actually said, no, this is nothing like what we gave you permission to do. You know, um, you've used uh, grey render rather than concrete panels. Uh, you've used kind of white plastic windows rather than the nice anodized aluminium. You know, well, I don't know the, the specific details, but it's, it's that level of of not following the, the permission. Um, and then the, the archdiocese has the cheek to turn around and say, oh, well, if, if we have to build it like we promised we would, it won't make the school viable. We'll have to close down. It's like, well, you shouldn't have gone for the cheaper design and build contract and allowed it to be you know, completely value engineered to within an inch of its life. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm afraid I've got less sympathy for the archdiocese, which seems to have tens of millions of pounds of investments that it could uh, dip into to actually rectify the, the problems with this building. Obviously, on that point, do you think this case highlights the stark lack of investment in the education and futures of young people in a borough like Lewisham itself? Um, and uh, why do you think uh, they've encountered such difficulties in building a fit for purpose, affordable private school is this about someone scrimping on hiring a good architect or about the mismanagement of contractors but yeah you're right it's symptomatic of of the total kind of lack of regard that we've got for educational buildings as a country you know ever since it was uh, 2010 when michael gove came in and axed the building schools for the future program accusing architects of creaming off cash you know which was nonsense 
Um, ever since then, we've had a kind of downward spiral, not only of space standards, but of you know quality standards. Most new schools now look like porter cabins or you know storage sheds. They've, they've because architects aren't allowed to be involved. You know that's the the root of the problem. Ever, ever, ever since yeah, twenty ten, they've, they've kind of been banished um and, and where architects are involved and and you have high quality schools it's often because the client has done very clever things with um kind of cross subsidizing so i recently went to see uh the new kind of hackney free school primary school by henley hale brown and the only reason they've managed to make that so good is because they've built a tower block of luxury flats on half the site <laughs> and that that's what pays for this nice school you know, because otherwise the, the kind of um, puny amount of funding they would get from central government wouldn't, um, wouldn't pay for it. Our third story this week was covered in The Guardian and relates to Labour leader Keir Starmer's backing to instigate curfews at London's Primrose Hill. Starmer, the MP for Hoban and St Pancras, has publicly condoned plans for the erection of nine-foot-tall aluminium barriers across the Royal Park. This follows apparent complaints to Starmer's office from local residents claiming a, quote, rowdy, violent, drug-taking and drug-dealing crowd had started using the park as a result of lockdown measures. However, others argue that the campaign is really motivated by wealthy property owners who want to stop working-class and ethnically diverse Londoners from accessing the park. Dean of the School of Architecture at the Royal College of Art, Adrian Lahoud, pointed out that, quote, during lockdown, Regent's Park and Primrose Hill became highly multi-ethnic spaces for socialisation, with large groups of Ethiopian and Somali families picnicking. This leads some to ask whether the real agenda behind the proposed curfew is actually an attempt to restrict the civic freedoms of black and brown Londoners. The Keep the Hill Open campaign, which was set up two weeks ago in response to this move by the Labour MP, currently has more than 500 signatories. Um, It appealed against the weekend curfews, calling these decisions undemocratic. Temporary barriers of the sort seen at festivals were installed on Friday to stop a perceived rise in crime and antisocial behaviour, but many residents speaking to The Guardian communicated their shock at these drastic measures being taken. It was a move many saw as cementing the park's exclusivity for wealthier residents. So, Ollie, what do you think about Keir Starmer's action in this case? Is he right to be backing the implementation of these security measures? Uh, And also, what do you think of Adrian LaHood's comments on the accusation that there might be some possibly some racial prejudice lurking behind the proposal to introduce a curfew. Dharma has really kind of misjudged the mood in this case. Um, But yeah, it's it's not something that he should have supported. I mean, antisocial behaviour can be tackled with so many other different means, you know, not nine foot high steel gates. Um, It's a question of, you know, a few more wardens, maybe actually having some temporary public toilets, given that that seems to be one of the main complaints from local residents. Uh, It doesn't require shutting off this park, which has, you know, been open all night, every night for at least the last 50 years. And particularly now, you know, after a lockdown that has disproportionately affected uh, younger people um, and black and ethnic minority people, you know, the, the lack of access to private outdoor space. I think it's something like one in five people in London doesn't have access to a garden. And, and that proportion is much higher amongst uh, minority groups. So, you know, parks are the last things we should be closing at the moment. If anything, we should be opening up more parks that are closed at night. You know, when I read this story, it made me think, actually, which parks are 
open all night? And the answer is basically none. But it's, it does raise that bigger question of actually why, why are parks closed at night in London? I, I get the sense that actually closing them off is something that probably encourages antisocial behaviour. You know, if you're ever misfortunate enough to be trapped in a locked park at night, it's much more scary than if it was open because it's the locking of the park that encourages, um, you know, maybe the kind of people that you wouldn't want to meet in a park at night to, to hang out there. I think Amsterdam has a really interesting policy. They, they've opened their main park 24-7 and actually recently legalised public sex um, I think the only rule is that you shouldn't do it near playgrounds, which is fair enough. But, you know, it's things like that. Legalising activities actually helped. You know, it's, it stops the kind of antisocial things that, that go along with, with that generally. Our final story is all about the new Matrix exhibition at the Barbican Centre, which was reviewed by Ollie in The Guardian. The new exhibition titled How We Live Now, Reimagining Spaces with Matrix Feminist Design Cooperative features an unseen archive of work from the group, as well as rare films, drawings, photos, and architectural models from the Matrix archive, presenting their use of radical methods across a range of projects, past and present. The exhibition was curated by Open City's very own John Astbury, with the help of practices such as Muff, Architecture Art, and Public Works, campaign groups like Part W and Black Females in Architecture, as well as the feminist design collective Edit, who designed the structure of the exhibition itself, typography, and the accompanying resources. The exhibition explores questions such as who our buildings and shared spaces are designed for, who is excluded from our designed environment, and what effect this has on the communities who live there. So Ollie, could you tell our audience a bit more about Matrix, uh, who they were, and why their work was so significant both then and now? I certainly can. And I think this is such a, an important show to have happened, because to be honest, until a few years ago, I'd never heard of the Matrix Feminist Design Cooperative either. You know, I mean, they've been written out of, of architectural history as far as I can understand. So, um, yeah, they formed out of the new architecture movement at the Architectural Association in the early 1980s, which itself was a supposedly kind of radical, slightly anarchist group of architects. But it was interesting talking to some of the Matrix founders. They said, you know, no matter how progressive the new architecture movement claimed to be, the women were still very much seen as the ones that would make the tea you know, as the guys sat around the table plotting the revolution. So that's how Matrix formed. It was the women that were slightly disillusioned with this radical movement. Um, and they just realised that women's voices are, you know, almost entirely cut out of, of the process of making the built environment. You know, whether it's architects, planners, engineers. In the 80s, it, it was incredibly rare to see women involved in, in that, in any of those kind of departments. Um, so yeah, they set about trying to change that. I mean, they, most of their projects were kind of community-led um, initiatives funded by the Greater London Council at the time under the leadership of Ken Livingstone. Um, so they're, they're, back in those days, it was this kind of utopian era where there was actually public money available for you know, feasibility studies for community groups, which is what, what they spent the bulk of their time doing. Um, so the exhibition shows a range of different projects. Um, there's one of them is the uh, Essex Women's Refuge, which was actually designed by a male architect and as a result was very dysfunctional. They were just kind of basic things that he'd got wrong, like the kitchens were far too small. Uh, the children's play area was nowhere near the communal area, so the mums couldn't actually keep an eye on their kids playing. You know, just kind of fundamental things like that. So Matrix came in 
using their usual tactics of building these kind of massive demountable models so that the user group could rearrange rooms and you know play around with the models themselves uh, using big ribbons marked out like rulers to kind of measure the existing spaces that they had and then superimposing those spaces on the plans so that the women could actually get a sense of of what was being designed, you know, which might sound like really obvious kind of fundamental basics, but so often those things are ignored by architects. I think particularly back then, you know, this, this might sound fairly straightforward stuff to us now, but those kinds of, of kind of tactics of basically making the language of architecture accessible to a non-expert, you know, it, it was super important in the way they worked. And in your article, you, you talk about um, feminist design. And in some ways, this isn't something that's really kind of clearly defined in architectural discourse. I mean, what, what did you what did you see of that in this exhibition? And also, are you are you seeing an emergence of this now in new projects here and around the world? You know, is, is this something which which is, is being revived through shows like this, for example? It's a really difficult question and, and, and one which Matrix always hated being asked. You know, that men would often come up to them and be like, so what is this feminist architecture? Kind of expecting it to be pink or, you know, curvy or something. And, and, and their reaction was always, you know, A, that's the wrong question, but it's about kind of looking and listening and, and designing in a way that takes account of people's different needs. You know, that we are all different and not everything should be designed around the kind of Corbusian ideal of the six foot tall policeman, you know, which was based, that, that's what he used to uh, develop his famous modular proportion system. Um, so it comes down to basic things. They, they showed a documentary film of um, Birmingham's Paradise Circus, which was kind of riddled with underpasses and, uh, you know, dual carriageways and dark kind of undercrofts, you know, spaces where it's very difficult to like push a pram, for example, or wheel a shopping trolley. You know, it, it showed footage of women kind of struggling around this incredibly oppressive urban environment of, of post-war Birmingham, which had been completely designed by male highways engineers. Um, so it's just the kind of fundamentals of like thinking actually who is using our city, what are their needs and desires, you know, can we have a slightly more inclusive and diverse conversation than than we usually have around the, the planning table. In that sense, then, it does seem like probably some of the best practices in Britain or the emerging ones are trying to work in that vein, although clearly they're not in the kind of like big, powerful commission stage where it's filtering through or at a kind of master plan level shaping entire new places. Exactly. So there's a section at the end of the exhibition, which is almost like the kind of legacy, you know, here is our impact. And I think that that's why this exhibition is so interesting for, for maybe kind of our age group. It's almost like, oh, this is where this stuff kind of started, you know, because now it almost seems so ubiquitous and we're, we're very used to these kinds of ideas being discussed. Um, but, but you forget that in the early 80s, you know, this was completely alien territory to, to most clients, most planners, most architects. Um, so they really kind of, um, yeah, forged a, a path. And it's great, their, their book from 1984, which at the moment you can buy for about £500 on eBay, uh, is being reissued by Verso at the end of this year. So um, it's called Making Space, Women and the Man-Made Environment. And so many of the issues are still you know, just as relevant today as they were back then. Ollie, it's been a great pleasure to have you on London this week. Where can listeners find out a bit more about your writing? Where should people follow you uh, to keep up to speed on all the things you're doing? Uh, well, The Guardian, I guess, is the best place. Um, 
uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at uh, Ollie Wainwright. Fantastic. Thank you again for coming on the show. It's been fantastic. I hope you can uh, join us on London again in the future soon. Thanks for having me, Merlin. It's been great. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.